Welcome back to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 250. Uh, this is Tim Maluli kicking things off for you today. For episode 250, kind of a milestone for the podcast, we wanted to take a minute to say thank you to everyone who's been listening to this podcast over the years. For us, it's been a pleasure doing this podcast, and we really hope to continue doing it over the years. Today, we're going to take a look back at some of the best topics over the last 50 episodes of the show, kind of a best of the best episode here. You're going to hear some clips talking about the value of college, why market timing is futile, how to get back into the market after taking your money out, why working longer isn't a real retirement plan, minimizing your student loans, and much more. All of these topics are evergreen and really can't be harped on enough. Enjoy the best of the Maluli Asset Management Podcast, and we will see you next week for episode 251. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. I read the uh, Financial Planning Association, FPA, wants to add restrictions on the use of the term financial planner. Sounds good. To be like actual fiduciaries like you like actually the term, have, to you have to be a, be a CFP. What prompted this was the idea that the CFP board, CFP board said that uh, if you are going to use the CFP marks, you have to be a fiduciary. Right. That's what prompted this uh, statement from the Financial Planning Association. Good move. Yeah, I'm I'm for it in both cases. I think if there were some way that we could streamline the the terms that people in our industry are allowed to to use and uh, when when they reference themselves and and what they do for business, I think it would be great because we've discussed many times. I think all these terms just get thrown into this giant pot and people think that they mean the same thing and they they definitely don't. Look, I mean, you, you if, if you're making these decisions, you can decide to do business with whoever you want. And if that's with somebody who isn't a fiduciary, who works on commission, and that's what you're comfortable with, that's fine. Like, I'm not trying to say everybody needs to work with fiduciaries like like us. Obviously, that would be self-serving. But I do think it's confusing to consumers when, you know, there's investment advisor, financial advisor, financial planner, like wealth manager, uh, account associate. Like, I don't like what are these people? And yeah. like, do they all do the same thing? They're all wearing shirts and ties. And who are these people? Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting to note that when we um, worked with Google to get us on Google Maps and uh, to set up our business page with the search engine, there was no, you know, you have to put down like what your business actually is, like what you do. So there was no drop down option for investment advisor, financial, financial advisor, planner. financial advisor, financial planner. I hesitate in using the term financial advisor when I talk about Maluli Asset Management because there are so many other businesses that don't do what we do that use that term. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, it's kind of become, what's the term that they use when they say, you know, like Xerox and uh, get a Kleenex? You know, the, the brand name has taken over the description for what, you know, what the term actually is. I, I think it's tough for the public to really understand. There was a report that TD Ameritrade put out about uh, most 
investors don't understand the difference between a financial advisor and an investment advisor. That report still very useful today, still relevant today. That report came out in 2006. It's 12 years ago. I think it's silly that basically the difference most of the time boils down to uh, like whether or not the person is a fiduciary. And, and to have the terminology like be that similar, it's like to the consumer, like, do I really care? Like investment advisor, financial advisor, like investments are financial, like, right. <laughs> like what, who cares? Like what, what is the difference? Like it needs to, like the names need to be like more of like a stark contrast so that you know what it is you're getting. Because it sounds like, it sounds like we're being like petty and like talking about semantics when it's like, no, 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 we're investment advisors. It's like, well... That we know what that means. We're basically saying we're fiduciaries. Right. But to the to the layperson, it's like, who cares? Like investment advisor, financial advisor, like what difference does it make? Right. So another article that I picked out uh, from Forbes talks about how to help your children minimize future student loan debt. Tying back into the last article, if you have less student loan debt, they might have more money to put into the market. You know, there's a lot of articles like this out there, but I actually really like this one because they talked about concrete steps that you can, as a parent, that you can have conversations with with your student about things that they can do to kind of cut things down. Right. It started out, outline the different ages as your child gets older and they approach college. It goes from, you know, when they're very young on the parents to start saving, maybe use a 529 plan to as they get into high school. You know, the tip that they had there was maybe see if they could take some AP classes or take the AP tests to get college credits that could transfer over so they don't have to have as many credits when they get to college. Uh, and it kind of works you through what the student could do to kind of offset some of these student loan costs. And I agree, I thought it was pretty good offering you know concrete things that they could do along the way to try and reduce the amount of loans that they needed to take on. I think it's important, these kind of conversations, to not just talk about you know, money and saving money and putting money in a 529 and doing things like that, but to also talk, like we've just mentioned, in specific steps that parents can suggest to their kids that, hey, you know what, if you have good grades and you take this AP exam and you get into an uh, advanced placement course, you should do it. Yeah. Because you're going to be chopping off credits that you're ultimately going to need for your degree when you graduate. We had a program where I went to high school, and, and again, this is in the 1970s, where seniors, if they qualified, could sit for, they called them fast classes, and it stood for something I forget. But basically, they had teachers, professors from CW Post College it was a college back then, uh, come in and teach these classes. They were on a completely separate track. And when they finished their first year, they had, I think it was 24 or 27 credits under their belt already done yeah. for the first year. I know just by doubling up on some of my classes, I finished college in three years. And then I just plowed ahead and got my master's. So it's just you know what? Having these kind of conversations just makes so much good sense. It seems that in this article that we saw in Forbes, about 52% of older workers are getting, like it or not, pushed out of their jobs. And it's a topic that we talk about as planners. Uh, it comes up a lot. Yeah, it's, it's something I think you want to discuss as uh, retirement is approaching, because oftentimes you're, you're baking into a plan that 
things are gonna things are gonna continue as they do today. Like the the job is still gonna be there three years out or four years out or five years out, and and you'll continue making the same amounts. Uh, it's worth considering that things could change over that period of time and and what that might look like. Right. Obvi- like there are obviously like a couple of levers you can pull when you're sitting down to do a financial plan and working longer or living on less are like two that you can pull. But to say without even like trying to do a plan like, oh, I'll just work longer. It, it doesn't work that way. Like, Well, it doesn't work that way in the sense that you think you're going to keep your current job. Like it or not, it seems like there's age discrimination in the workplace. This is going to sound really trite to say, but the first time I ever saw it in Living Color was in the movie Wall Street. And so that was uh, filmed in 1987. And there was an old broker who used to wear a suit and tie every day, nice little pocket square. And uh, he just never did any production. He just sat around all day. And at one point during the movie, they dismissed him because he was just, you know, taking up space. I don't like, know if that's the case. I mean, a lot, I think a lot of companies are just faced with the decision that, I mean, uh, what would be more offensive to the to the worker who's been somewhere for a long time? We're letting you go or you have to take a 50% pay cut to stay. I think most of them would walk out the door if you told them they were getting a 50% pay cut. So they uh, would quit anyway. I just heard a story about that last night. And that prompted someone that we know to get up and walk out because they were actually looking at additional work being put on their plate and... Uh, certainly no pay increase in the future and the possibility of a change in salary, lower. Right. So from the company standpoint, sending people off to greener pastures when they've reached a certain point in their career just makes sense because you're going to offend them either way, whether you say their job is not going to be there anymore or they're going to give it to somebody who they can pay half that much who is 30 years younger than them. I mean... It's heartless. I mean, yeah, but... (laughs) Are they supposed to, like a lot of people in today's world will also leave their job for $10,000 more a year. So that's kind of heartless too. Like there's there's just no loyalty between employees and employers anymore in either direction. It doesn't seem that way. So just to say that like, oh, like I will work longer. Yes, like you, your point is that they could do that, but it may not be how they want. Like it may not be in the exact same job they're in now. It might be something. Doing something else. Something else that they believed to be like beneath them or something so if you working at home depot right like there's nothing wrong with that at all um but you have to be receptive to the idea so if you're forced out of a job or a career that you've had for 20 or 30 years and and your financial plan was that you were going to work for five or even 10 more years when you know when this happens to you are you are you going to be receptive to the idea that that it's going to be doing something like that as opposed to the desk job that you had before that or whatever it is that you were coming from? The first article that we wanted to talk about was written by Ben Carlson, uh, and it deals with the psychology of sitting in cash. Brent, you want to break it down for us? Ben is one of the more prolific writers, uh, bloggers out there, so he's writing multiple posts, I think maybe four or five a week normally. Right. And uh, this this one, you know, he was writing about like the the idea of going to cash with your investments, whether it be uh, because you think things have become too extended and you're going to wait for a pullback or because you're nervous. I mean, however you get there, once you're in cash, like, like what do you do then? Right. And it's timely because, you know, obviously over the last couple of weeks, the market has pulled back. And then as of this recording, you know, the market, at least for the time being, has seemed to 
at least stop going down and today it's up but you know that brings into the question like when when is the right time to get back into the market after you've made the decision to get out of the market yeah and it's going to be obviously dependent on like what you're trying to accomplish but ben was kind of getting at like the idea that you know cash gives you optionality which is true i think you know as a, as an aside you should always have money liquid ready to go outside of your market investments but within the market it gives you optionality too to kind of like quote unquote like swing at a fat pitch like like buffett talks about like being patient and like waiting for your pitch and these opportunities but that means being able to identify them which is like really tough like so if if you have a bunch of money in cash I mean, how do you how do you recognize that it's an opportunity? If the market's falling, you're probably scared. Yeah, and so like one of the ideas that Ben talks about is that like corrections or bear markets don't make it any easier to pull the trigger. So like like I just said, like while the market is falling, in theory, it sounds like oh yeah, stocks are on sale. Like I'll I'll jump in there and like buy at a discount. But in reality it becomes really difficult to actually act upon that and pull the trigger in the heat of the moment. Right, yeah. You hear about that, like, oh, they're on sale, and people always say that while the market's going up. But you never hear people say that when it's going down. Right. Everyone's like, oh, is this the start of something else? Yeah. Is this the start of, you know, another recession or another 2008? Everyone gets really worried. It always could be, and there are always, like, scary factors that people begin discussing when the market's pulling back, trying to explain what's happening. And some of them, obviously, are the same old stories all the time, and they're kind of ridiculous. But but other times, these are perfectly reasonable things that people are discussing. So, I don't know, like, it it takes a little bit of uh, humility, I think, to just recognize that you probably won't be chomping at the bit to put your money to work when the market has, you know, dropped twenty, thirty percent, and you've been you've been sitting on cash. I I think right. it it almost uh, one of one of the analogies Ben uses in this post is like a uh, cash becomes like a like a warm blanket. Uh, it's like a warm blanket on a cold Saturday morning when you right. when you don't want to get out of bed. It's just like yeah, yeah I could put my money to work but this is kind of comfortable right and then you look and you blink and five years have gone and your money still isn't working for you it's sitting in cash i mean may have been a good you may have nailed it in the short term maybe you did sidestep some damage but if you don't get back in at some point in the future i think it's going to be something you look at in hindsight as uh you know if if not a mistake then you you get rid of all the benefit that you had of sidestepping whether i mean whether anybody can effectively do that. So the last article that we wanted to talk about today was uh, written by Drew Dixon from uh, Albert Bridge Capital. It was titled The Futility of Market Timing. This was one of my favorite posts that I've seen in in months now. Yeah. This was so awesome. I, I love this post from Drew. And we're going to, we'll link to all of these in the show notes. This is one that I would recommend going and reading yeah, the full article the because there are really good charts that give you a really good visualization of what the article was about. And I mean, the title is pretty self-explanatory. Drew talks about, you know, he gives a pretty clear example of why market timing is not that important. I'll walk through the hypotheticals here. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's kind of the same thing as what we were just talking about. It's like, yes, technically, if you, as he lays out, if you were to time the market correctly, perfectly like you could 
make more money, but it's unnecessary. It's just an unnecessary thing to worry about. Yeah, I guess is kind of the theme of what we've been talking about here. Right. Uh, the example that Drew lays out is, uh, assume you are 25 years old and you're going to invest $1,000 a year into the S and P 500 for 30 years. And so he went back in a number of different 30-year periods, but the, the first one that he did was from 1989 through the present, right. uh, assuming that you did this. He, he walks through two examples. Number one is the perfect market timer, where you invest your $1,000 every year at the exact lowest price of that calendar year. Nail do this for 30 years, year. every single year, which yeah. literally nobody on the face of the earth can do. Yeah. But- Everybody wants to try because it seems like it would add a ton to your returns to have this kind of perfect foresight. Right. You'd think yeah. naturally. The Okay. And so he juxtaposed that against the the worst market timer ever who does the exact same thing except buys at the exact high every single year. Right. So worst price you could get possibly every single calendar year for 30 years. Right. The perfect market timer ends up after 30 years with... One hundred and fifty-five thousand seven hundred and sixty-nine dollars. Right. The, Pretty good. No, awesome. very good. Yeah. yeah. The the worst market timer in the world gets one hundred and twenty-one thousand eight hundred and twenty-two dollars. Still pretty good like pretty good yeah. and you would imagine that the discrepancy between those returns would be far greater right. like like if you told me without showing me the worst that the best was 155,000, I would assume that the worst was going to be like 50 grand 50, or something yeah. like that. Right. Uh, not really the case. So point being that even if you could do this, yeah. any of us could do this, right. even if we could do it, it doesn't add that much value to the investment. The, the thing is more to have a consistent plan, continue buying over this 30-year period or right. whatever your horizon is, and just forget about having perfect timing skills because it's not going to be that important over the long term. Right. And I think another point that, well, that I took away from it was more, you know, he used 30-year time stretches for this. And he he showed different ones as well. He did, you know, 1959 through 1989, 1969 through 99. Mm -hmm. And they all came out with the same, you know, minuscule difference between best and worst. Yeah. Um, you could You could have the worst luck or timing in the world, like in this example. Right. And you're still getting 80% of the way there. Right. Like like you have 80% of, of what the hypothetical, uh, yeah. you know, dude with Biff's uh, sports almanac right. has exactly. by nailing, nailing the exact low in the market every year. Yeah. This omnipotent person who doesn't exist. You right. can get 80% of the way there, even if you are the most unlucky person yeah. on the face of the earth. Yeah. So I think... You know, for me, that's like over 30 years, it's not really going to matter when you put your money to work as long as, like you were saying, you're consistently putting it to work. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, over if your time horizon is like a year or two years, then it might. There could be a then, big difference. Then sure. it might matter. Sure. Um, and But, but give yourself enough <laughs> runway to, we don't, you know. We don't, but uh, the, the ability to predict how that will unfold over a shorter time horizon like yeah. like the impact will be much greater over a year two or three than over 10 20 or 30 right but our ability to predict that beforehand doesn't become any better with the shorter time horizon and right so like if you're if you're putting money into stocks and you only have a horizon of one two or three years i would question whether you should be doing that at all because if the timing lock is going to make such a big difference that 
it's unpalatable to you to say like, man, I, I, I really need to nail this because if I don't, yeah. I'm going to be screwed. That's such a big That's gamble. A, that is a red flag that you shouldn't be doing it at all. Right. If the timing needs, if, if you need to have t- perfect timing to make something work, don't do it. Right. Because you're not going to have perfect timing. Or yeah. if you do, I mean, God bless you. It's <laughs> not a, lucky. it's not a decision yeah. I would repeat you know, a hundred right. times over, you're, you're probably not going to nail it on 99 times out of a hundred yeah. in, in the timing department. So absolutely. A uh, report out recently from MIT uh, that showed the cumulative change in real weekly earnings of working age adults. So these are working age adults. So this is from age 18 through 64 and it covered a period from 1963 to 2017 in some cases going back as far as 55 years. And they showed what happened to the change in real weekly earnings if you were someone who was a high school graduate or if you had some college or a bachelor's degree or if you had a graduate degree. What what impact did that have on your earnings over time? They also included what if you were a high school dropout? Very interesting. Using 1963 as zero you know, their launch point, they showed that there really was no drop-off for uh, your income in the 60s and actually into the early 70s. There wasn't much drop-off between a college graduate or someone with a graduate degree and a high school dropout. But things shifted very quickly after that. In fact, uh, from a peak in 1981 through the late 90s, in the late 90s, you were actually on a dollar-for-dollar basis earning less than a high school graduate uh, 25 years earlier uh, in the 1960s. And that hasn't really budged all that much now in the last 25 years, where if you're dropping out of high school, you're going to have a tough time making money, and your income hasn't increased at all, really, in the last 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Now, by comparison, we were both looking at this. That was for men who fit those different profiles. Women, high school dropouts, uh, starting again, 1963, as your zero launch point, uh, they've actually had a somewhat steady ride up again not making much as people who have some college or college degree, but they are moving up. And you alluded that to... I think that could just be fairer wages being given to women over this time period or more women entering the workforce. I mean, this goes back 50 years. A lot has happened over the last 50 years in terms of equal pay. I don't don't think we're quite there yet, but uh, things have definitely gotten better over this time period. And maybe that speaks to uh, equality. Probably a lot behind this. It's interesting to note that if you have a graduate degree, uh, if you're a male with a graduate degree, uh, pretty much a straight shot up from 1963 into the 1970s, kind of pause there around the late 70s into the early 80s. And from there, moonshot up very nicely. The graph is actually sloped even higher for women who have graduate degrees. Their income doesn't really seem to be stopping. Right. Uh, I don't know what the uh, larger report that this was from uh, says or is about, but what this graph says to me, the people who tell you the solution to all this student loan stuff is to just like stop going to college. Those people are wrong. 
Yeah. And that's not a good idea. And additionally, we hear all of these stories about people like Bill Gates, who dropped out of college and started making sure. computers uh, and stuff in his in his garage. That's terrific. That doesn't mean that you should do that either. Right. Like, And that's not to say that you 100% won't be successful doing that, because obviously this is on average. Right. So on average, people with a college degree or a graduate degree pretty much goes in order by the level of your education. That's that's you you could basically just match those with earnings. I could name these lines without even looking at the legend on the chart. You know what they are based on how much school they went to. That has been the message, but people have begun to question that recently because things like student loans have really gotten out of hand. Totally agree with that. It's a problem. Maybe some of those dynamics are suggesting that not as many people should go to these different levels of school that they did, but I don't think the answer is just that like college is crap and you should you should not go because right. I, I think a lot of people are beginning to suggest that and it has political undertones that's that really, I don't care for. That's really going to hurt people as they get older in life. So the, my, the, the main message I saw in, in these charts, stay in school. <laughs>